You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk about redemptive rigging. Redemptive rigging. From Mark chapter 15, verse 1, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Hear these words from Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The word rig, rigged or rigging, suggests actions that are fixed in advance in order to accomplish a definite purpose or a desired result. Read. That's what we get in some boxing matches. When the boxing match is rigged for an individual to achieve a TKO at a certain round. Rigged. A basketball game, a baseball game, a game to be won by a certain number of runs or a certain number of points. Rigged. Even superhero episodes I discovered many years later were rigged. My favorite superhero was Popeye the Sailor Man. And like the man that left Jerusalem on the Jericho Road, sometime Popeye would appear as if he had been beaten, robbed, and left half dead, and sometimes even looked as if he was dead. He would be able to get hold to a can of spinach and would be rejuvenated, renewed, and revived. And I found out later that it was rigged because Popeye the sailor man could never be the victim. He had to always be the victor. The redemption drama has been rigged. In other words, God has used the shenanigans of the Sanhedrin council, of Pilate the governor of Judea, of Herod Antipas the governor of Galilee, of Caiaphas the reigning high priest, 
of Annas, the former high priest, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, of the chief priests, the priests, the uh, men of the Roman government who were working as lictors, Jews, individuals who were scribes and elders, they were all rigged. They had no idea that behind what they were doing, there was a hand of God who was handing them over to them in order that these actions that were fixed ahead of time might achieve a definite purpose or a set destiny that would fit the sovereign will of God. It's Stephen Covey in his work, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He titles one of his chapters, Beginning with the End in Mind. I like that because that's exactly what God does. God is the only one who writes a book backward. He's the only one who can write the epilogue before he even writes the prologue. Because he knows the end from the beginning. And Isaiah 46 and 10 says, God knows the end before the beginning begins. And so John pins these words in, John, in Revelation 13 and 8. That Jesus was as a, of a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, Calvary is not plan B. Calvary is plan A. Calvary is not a reaction to the fall Calvary is a pre-action before the fall ever occurred. God is not surprised. He had the cure before there was a problem. And therefore he begins after establishing in the book of Revelation, Christus Victor. Christ is victorious. Now he begins to tell us how that happened. Genesis 3.15. Moses, by inspiration, writes in that proto-euangelion, that is the first gospel, that the seed of the serpent shall bruise the seed of the woman's heel, which will put him out of action on Good Friday. But the seed of the woman will bruise the seed of the serpent's head. So on the third day, when Jesus rose from the dead, since the cross was not enough, there had to be the resurrection. It is cross and resurrection because many people had died before everybody who died stayed dead even though they were temporarily resuscitated. But when Jesus got up from the dead, it spelled the eternal defeat of Satan himself. And therefore God is showing us how he's rigging the redemptive drama. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, the author under inspiration says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from between its feet until Shiloh comes, till Shalom, till peace comes. Judah, that's the tribe, Judah. And so Joseph, after many years, is able to come to this conclusion in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He said to his brothers, you meant it unto me for evil, but God meant it unto me for good to save many people alive. Joseph didn't say that when his brother sold him into slavery. He didn't say that when Mrs. Potiphar put a phony molestation charge on him. He didn't say that when he wound up in jail. He didn't say that when the baker and the butler forgot about him. But now that he's had a chance to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, 
plan to execute a salvation plan in terms of saving the Egyptians from starvation, but not only the Egyptians, his own family, because they were feeling the effect of starvation and would have starved had it not been for the fact that there was corn, that was bread in Egypt, and they came down there, which meant now that Judah is spared. And if, had that, if there had not been a Judah, there would not have been a Boaz. And if there was no Boaz, there would not have been an Obed. If there was no Obed, there would not have been a Jesse. If there was no Jesse, there would not have been a David. And if there was no David, there would not have been a Jesus. And God allows Joseph to be a part of the redemptive drama through the redemption by rigging, by having him to go down there in order to interpret the dream so much so that people from his nation particularly Judah, could be saved. Oh, brothers and sisters, God is up to redemptively rigging the drama for our salvation. It's what happens here in the 15th chapter of Mark, verse number 1. Hear the words from Mark 15 and 1. Having been bound by the Sanhedrin council, Jesus was led away and handed over to Pilate. That word, paradidomi, that's the Greek word. It, it means to hand over, to give over, to deliver. And he's delivered over to the hand of Pilate, but there is a hand delivering him over to the hand of Pilate, and Pilate is not even aware of that. The same thing occurs in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, where the text says that according to the predetermined or fixed counsel of God and foreknowledge of God, Jesus is handed over. The word there comes from paradidomi. It's the root of it. He's handed over to the hands of lawless men. They had no idea that God had already planned this in eternity past. But on the third day, verse 24, God raised him from the dead. I'm so glad that God rigs our lives. Oh yes, we have free wills, but God sovereignly rigs, superintends our lives. No wonder uh, it was James Russell Law who said, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. But the scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God in the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Or Sir Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian of the 19th century, would remind us that life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. And after we have lived long enough and reflected on what has happened in our lives, and we've dusted for the fingerprints of the triune God on the pages of our own biographies, we will discover that his fingerprints are on every single page. Because life must be lived forward, but you can only understand it backwards. And when you look back, you see how God is redemptively wreaking your life for good because you love him. And you've been called according to his purpose. That's what happens when you're in the will of God. 
It happened with Caleb in Joshua 14, verse 10. Caleb has waited 45 years for this mountain, for this country. And he says to Joshua in Joshua 14 and 10, God has kept me alive for 45 years as he promised for me to have this mountain. As I was in the will of God, I became immortal because he promised that I would have it. And even if it took 45 years, since God is not in time, time is in God, God kept me alive for this moment. It happened with Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verses 20 to 26. And Simeon had been promised by the Lord, you will not see death until you've seen the Lord's Christ. And now that Mary and Joseph come in and present Jesus, Simeon takes Jesus after the purification of Mary, holds him up and says, now Lord, dismiss thy servant from your sight because my eyes have seen your salvation and you rigged it so that I could live long enough for your promise to be fulfilled. It's the same thing that happens with Paul in Acts chapter 27, verses 23 to 24. He's been out on the sea and there are 276 persons on the ship counting him and he has not seen the stars and they don't know where they are. They don't have a GPS system, but God knows where they are and sends an angel there and says to Paul, Paul, you must get to Rome, not to be a political prisoner, but to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And look at your life. I don't care how messy it looks and how chaotic it seems to be. There is one who's in the shadows, keeping watch above his own. He is in control of your life. Chapter 15, verse number one. There is this decision made by the Sanhedrin council. The decision is, we need to get rid of Jesus. He has to die and we can't kill him because we don't have the right to put anyone to death. We're under Roman government. So they take him to Pilate, the governor, who's the Roman governor, who's been the governor, AD 26, and will be the governor to AD 36, appointed by Tiberius Caesar. Verse number two. Uh, evidently, this governor has heard what they've been interrogating Jesus about. And this governor, Pilate, asks, are you the king of the Jews? Which, of course, is a real threat. That's really what caused Herod the Great some 30-some years ago to be unnerved on his throne because he heard that the king of the Jews was born and the Bethlehem massacre occurred because he attempts to get rid of Jesus, the son of God. Uh, that's what is happening here. And Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? He asked it rather sarcastically. Verse number three, here's a situation in which the Bible says accusations are made against Jesus. Verse number four, Jesus does not answer. The Bible says that he's silent. He does not speak at all. It is as if he's fulfilling Isaiah 53 and 7. As the lamb is led before the slaughter and sheep before shearers are dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Verse number five. Scripture says that Pilate has already asked him. Don't you hear what they're saying about you? Aren't you going to answer? And the Bible says in verse five, Jesus remained dumb. That is silent. And Pilate, verse five, is amazed. He's amazed about Jesus, but he is not attracted to Jesus. Amazed, yes, but not attracted to Jesus. He's the same one 
who in Matthew chapter 27 verse 19 hears his wife say, don't have anything to do with Jesus, this innocent man, because I've had a dream that has troubled me. He's the same one who asked the question in Matthew 27 and 22, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? He is the same one who in John 18 and 38 asked the question, what is truth? He's looking for a propositional truth and the personification of truth is standing before him. Jesus is truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. John 14 and 6. He's the very same one who says in John 19 and 5, Behold the man. And he saw the man, but he didn't see the incarnate man. That is God and flesh. 100% God and 100% man. He was amazed, but not attracted to Jesus. And now there is this custom in verse number 6. A releasing a prisoner during this particular time during the feast of the Passover in verse number seven there is an insurrection there insurrection is there his name is Barabbas son of a father that's what his name means he's one who has disturbed the peace of Rome he's in prison along with others who join the riots and a prisoner or someone of the crowds recommendation will be released from de death and will not have to be exposed to it. Verse number eight, the history is once again, a prisoner is to be released. And Pilate asked in verse nine, do you want me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews? That's what he really wanted. He knew he was innocent, but he did not have the guts to do what he knew he needed to do. Verse number 10, the Bible says that these individuals propose that the death penalty be carried out on Jesus because they were jealous of his influence and his popularity with the people. Verse number 11, here was a situation in which the crowd stirs up uh, more and more followers to the point that the peace of Rome is being threatened. And that's one of the responsibilities of the governor, to keep the peace of Rome, to prevent a riot and a mob from taking place. Once again, verse number 11, verse number 12, rather, here was a situation in which Pilate has to ask, what has he done that will substantiate him receiving the death penalty? Verse 13, shall I release Jesus? They said, crucify him. Verse 14, once again, what charge? They still ignore it and say, crucify him. And in verse 15, he takes and releases a son of the father and allows the son of the father to be crucified. Jesus is stripped and the Roman lictors stand on either side of Jesus. Jesus is taken and his hands lifted up, tied to a stake or a pole, and they alternate left and right with a cat of nine tails, as it is known, a whip with leather uh, straps with a bone and metal bound up in the end, and they take turns, they take turns whipping him until his back looks like a fresh plowed ground. 
bleeding, stripped, even to the point that the Roman uh, lashing was much more cruel and brutal than the Jewish lashing of 39 stripes. It was unlimited. The bones of the skeletal system could be exposed. The entrails, the organs could be exposed. And Jesus is whipped. And Roman governor Pilate had to see that. And the Bible says that he gave Jesus over to be crucified in order to satisfy the crowd. And in Matthew 27 and 24, he takes a pail of water and he washes his hands as if to absolve himself from any responsibility. Pilate, you don't need to do that. Water will not wash away your sins. Pilate, I want to ask you this question. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how precious is the flow that can make me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And one of these days when we stand on the heavenly shore and wring the blue waters of tribulation from the hem of our garments and we're able to look back and see how God has so redemptively rigged and orchestrated and choreographed the steps and the movements of our lives, we will fall down at his feet and praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one who has brought us through. Until that time, may we forever thank God for the drama of redemption that is too deep to understand and yet worth rehearsing over and over and over again. Sing it over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.